Welcome to Catholic Economics. I'm your host, Levi Russell, and this is Essential Reading. So today I'm going to be reading another paper by Rupert Ederer, and this one is called The Industry Council Arrives in America. It was published in the Review of Social Economy uh, in September 1961, and it's an interesting little paper because I I think at at this point in time, because I keep getting questions from people about, well, you know, how, how, how can we... Uh, you know, are unions really the best way to go? How can we build a, uh, you know, solidarity and solidarism into the workplace and into uh, industries? Because it seems like the you know, unions only represent the uh, workers, and uh, you know, we're we're always on, we're always kind of in a search for this sort of specific um, remedy to this situation. And you know, we we look at. Um, we look at uh, go back to my episode on the uh, the uh, Constitution of Austria under um, under Chancellor Dolphus, and you know he he lays out this uh, specific uh, set of bodies that the industries are represented in uh, in the government, and so uh, you know people are looking for that kind of thing. So I just want to read through this because I think it's an interesting, uh, even though it's about 60 years old now, it's kind of an interesting take on this question because uh, I think you'll see this isn't a new question. And uh, I think uh, Ederer uh, has some interesting things to say about it. So here it is. The Industry Council Arrives in America by Rupert J. Ederer, Rosary Hill College. It has been said that if Catholic social scientists finally come face-to-face with an industry council, they will not recognize it. The fraction of truth in this charge stems from the undue obsession that many of these zealots have had for form rather than for matter. In hammer and tongs fashion, many Catholic economists and sociologists, after studying the directives regarding industry councils in Quadragesimo Anno, set about drawing blueprints for such councils. These were varied and some were interesting, but by and large, in this writer's opinion, they missed the point. Pius XI intended nothing more than to provide certain reference points based upon a reasonable social philosophy. These reference points could be adapted to various national temperaments and institutional frameworks. No one form is correct for all times and all places, nor is the form as important as the spirit. That spirit, based soundly on reason, is one of group harmony flowing from common interests and problems. A social organism which serves to further this harmony, always with respect for the broader common good, could be an industry council. Basing ourselves on Pius XI's directives, we may tentatively define an industry council as a continuous organization of men working in the same industry, regardless of rank or position, for the purpose of solving the problems and furthering the legitimate aims of their industry. Such councils are to be remedy for what Pius called this grave disorder which is leading society to ruin. By the disorder, he meant the situation in labor relations which divides man on the labor market into two classes, as into two camps, and the bargaining between these two parties transforms this labor market into an area where the two armies are engaged in combat. 
The Pope suggested groups, which in his words would bind men together, not according to the position they occupy in the labor market, but according to the diverse functions which they exercise in society. A significant fact is the Pope's reference to these groups as natural and spontaneous. How could something natural be totally absent from a social framework, simply because the framework is just a framework and not an order? But if the concept of the industry council is natural, it is also reasonable, and reasonable men, whether or not they belong to the church of Pius XI, will ultimately work out reasonable solutions to their problems. Perhaps this is why Arthur Goldberg, a Jew, recently suggested that a labor management assembly was needed. Such an assembly could, in Goldberg's words, discuss and think about the important issues in the labor management area on a broader basis than is possible in collective bargaining, not to fight and bicker over the words of a contract or a resolution. Also, the naturalness of the Industry Council may be the reason why John L. Lewis, a Protestant, launched an era of model labor management cooperation in the mining industry after decades of bitter class conflict. It is time now for a brief progress report on the Industry Council in the United States. For in this writer's opinion, the Industry Council has begun to be part of the American social fabric, spontaneously. Reasonable men, it seems, have begun to sense that the area of common, the area of common interest between labor and management is broader than the area of conflict. Possibly as an, as an advanced portent of what was to come, there was this noteworthy development. When the AF of L and the CIO met in Atlantic City to merge their two federations during the December of, 20, of 1955, the delegates to that convention drafted a preamble to the AFL-CIO constitution, which was radically different from, the old, from that of the old AF of L. Note the wording of the AF of L constitution's preamble that was drawn up in 1881. Whereas a struggle is going on in all the nations of the civilized world between the oppressors and the oppressed of all countries, a struggle between the capitalist and the laborer, which grows in intensity from year to year. This could have been written by Karl Marx. Nevertheless, the class conflict which it describes was quite real at the time. It was only as working men won their rights and became free citizens of industry that they could begin to talk about cooperation. Slaves and servants do not cooperate. They merely obey. It is to the credit of American labor that its attitude is as flexible as it is. Against the background of gains that were bitterly contested most of the way, they might have remained far more embittered and class-conscious than they actually are. Instead, organized American workers, having won their right to deal with their employers as equal human beings, are now ready in increasing numbers to talk seriously about this vast area which they have in common with management in their industries. The preamble of the new AFL-CIO Constitution says nothing about a struggle between capital and labor. It replaces the language of Marxian warfare with an appeal to divine guidance and a statement which reads, We seek the fulfillment of these hopes and aspirations through democratic processes within the framework of our constitutional government and consistent with our institutions and traditions. At the collective bargaining table in the community, in the exercise of the rights and responsibilities of citizenship, we shall responsibly serve the interests of all the American people. This wholesome revision, like Arthur Goldberg's suggestion for a labor management assembly, away from the bargaining table, is an indication that men are beginning to think correctly. Nor are these isolated instances. Labor management discussions away from the bargaining table have become almost the stock and trade of U.S. Labor Secretary James P. Mitchell whenever he addresses labor and management groups. In a recent speech, Mitchell stated, 
Collective bargaining, business as usual, without a real effort to join outside the bargaining table and develop competitive measures could mean no business at all. Again, before the railway operating, railway operating Brotherhood's Spring Institute held at the State University of Iowa in April 1960, the Labor Secretary said, The rejection of compulsion, the rejection of forced change, the rejection of the status quo, and the need to force, face squarely the responsibilities that labor and management bear toward the public, all of these things point the way, in my mind, to the only manner in which labor-management relations can keep pace with progress, and that is by supplementing the bargaining table, prefixing it with a new form of communication disassociated from bargaining and deadlines and demands. Nor are such thoughts the sole property of neutral outsiders. One of the men in Mitchell's audience was Guy L. Brown, then Grand Chief of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers. Brown has played the industrial unity motif for some time. In addressing a conference of rail employees, Brown said, I see absolutely no reason why a man or woman can't be a loyal Chesapeake and Ohio employee and a loyal member of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers or one of the other rail labor organizations. In fact, the two loyalties should complement one another very well. In the same address, the engineer's chief foresaw an era in which intelligent, self-respecting men from both sides of the bargaining table can achieve a harmony of interests that previous generations found impossible. So much for correct thought, but has there been any action? The answer is decidedly yes, a significant action. Although it is too early to discuss outcomes, the top-level labor management assembly first suggested by President George Meany of the AFL-CIO in 1955 and more recently recommended by Labor Secretary George Mitchell, Mitchell and Arthur Goldberg are now a reality. The first attempt at such an assembly took the form of peace talks between Meany and Charles R. Sly of the National Association of Manufacturers back in 1956. These first summit talks faltered over the union shop issue, and you might say that the opposing forces took cover in previously prepared positions. It took the paralyzing impact of the 116-day steel strike in 1959 to coax the parties into serious top-level talks. The loss from this strike was so great and so obvious that even the most stubborn warriors realized at last what was meant by the common good. Accordingly, on May 19, 1960, a committee of six, three from the AFL-CIO and three from the NAM, met in a Washington, D.C. hotel to lay the groundwork for a more reasonable labor management pattern. While it is too early to assay the results of such summit talks, they are encouraging because they indicate the coming of the dawn in this matter of a common good which transcends, transcends positions in the labor market. A Council for Steel Although labor management summit talks do not constitute an industry council in the strict sense of the word, since they cut across industry lines, the arrangement that has been worked out in the steel industry since the steel strike does, in this writer's opinion, represent a real nascent industry council. It was born amid the gloom, name-calling and new sprint warfare of the recent steel strike. It first saw the light of day when Edgar Kaiser of Kaiser Steel of Fontana, California, fled from the bristling camp of the steel giants and made peace with the enemy, if you will. The Kaiser settlement shattered the smug togetherness of the steel captains, but it then set the pattern for further settlements. What is more, Kaiser's action provided the type of leadership which Americans have come to expect of their industrial leaders, and especially of the Kaiser brothers. Briefly, the Kaiser Agreement provides for two committees, 
One is a committee of nine members, three each from the public, labor, and management. It will deal with long-range problems affecting the steel industry. This tripartite group will recommend ways of sharing the company's future economic progress equitably among workers, stockholders, and the public. Of its prospects, Steelworkers President David McDonald said, If we are successful in establishing this idea as the pattern for the American steel industry, I feel certain in my heart that the International Wage Policy Committee will never again have to call a nationwide strike. The Kaiser Settlement provides for a second plant-level committee, three from the union and three from management. This is known as a work rules committee, which will act on problems resulting from automation, technological change, and local working conditions generally. Asked what would happen if this committee votes three for and three against a proposal, Kaiser replied, That's what the industry tells us will happen. They say this is for the birds. Well, if faith that you can work out something with somebody else is for the birds, we had better fold the whole country up. There may well be a connection between the spirit behind the Kaiser settlement and reports by Kaiser officials that grievances have declined by more than 50% since the strike ended. Also, the council idea has since spread to Kaiser Aluminum, where impromptu meetings between labor and management are being held. Eleven other basic steel giants, while more gingerly than Kaiser, did steal a considerable page from the book. Section 8, paragraph 3 of their settlement calls for the establishment of a joint committee headed by a neutral chairman to study local working condition provisions. The committee has been formed and named the Human Relations Research Committee. Steelworkers President McDonald has has intimated that this committee may well work out all contract terms before the next negotiations are due in 1962. We dare say that this nascent industry council in steel is not due to the fact that David McDonald of the Steelworkers is a Catholic who has read Quadragesimo Anno. It is more due to the fact that both he and Mr. Kaiser are reasonable men who have grown weary of the periodic strife over a few cents an hour, which ties up a major industry and creates widespread unemployment reduces the national product, and trims the slice of the pie going to workers as well as stockholders. The Building Trades Although without fanfare and pyrotechnics that accompanied the birth of an industry council in steel, a council that is every bit as genuine, and for the time being more clear-cut, has arisen in the construction industry. In January 1959, a group of building contractors met in Florida, with building trade union leaders, and probed the possibility of setting up a permanent joint council at the national level to solve mutual problems and promote their industry by warring on waste and inefficiency. As a result, the Construction Industry Joint Conference was born in Washington on April 7th. This council, set up on a permanent and continuous basis with offices in Washington, D.C., is made up of national presidents, of building trade unions, and of contractors' associations. Professor John T. Dunlop of Harvard University is its impartial chairman. It cites as its objective to promote the welfare of the building trades and construction industry in the public interest. Specifically, it strives to improve performance and productivity by contractors and workers and to promote the contract system. The Construction Industry Joint Conference operating at the national level would have valuable, though limited, effectiveness. Significantly, it provides for the establishment of local joint conferences which can better come to grips with local industry problems. St. Louis has the distinction of forming the first such local council, and note, this is called a council, the St. Louis Construction Industry Joint Council. 
Its establishment incur, occurred on June 9, 1959, and it involves over 35,000 men, including the 19 building trade unions and 10 large contractor associations. Perhaps the St. Louis Council was sparked by the experience of brother tradesmen across the Mississippi in East St. Louis. In 1958, nine unions and the Southern Illinois Builders Association signed the 10-point Statement of Policy that the AFL-CIO Building and Construction Trades Department adopted in February of that year to cut feather bedding in construction. Almost immediately, the Granite City Steel Company announced that it would build its new main office building in the area. Soon afterward, the Shell Company announced a major expansion of its large Wood River, Illinois refinery. Whether or not this is a formal council in East St. Louis, the fact remains that this is an industry council action with positive and dramatic results. The electrical industry. Older than any of these councils is the one that has been working quietly, but with phenomenal success in the electrical industry. It is known as a Council on Industrial Relations, involving the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers and the National Association of Electrical Contractors. Harmony in this industry first came to life in 1919 when the electrical contractors and the IBEW signed a Declaration of Principles. The second of these principles states, Close contact and mutually sympathetic interest between employee and employer will develop a better working system and will tend constantly to stimulate production while improving the relationship between employer and the community. Principle number seven is also significant. Cooperation between employer and Employee and employer acquires constructive power as both employees and employers become more completely organized. This almost suggests that unionization and employer organizations must precede effective industrial cooperation. The Council on Industrial Relations was not actually set up until 1921, and it had functioned ever since. Known as the Supreme Court in the electrical industry, the council is made up of six representatives from the National Electrical Contractors Association, and six from the IBEW. These members meet quarterly in various parts of the country and decide unanimously on a wide variety of industry problems. Cooperation in the electrical industry has spread far beyond the Council on Industrial Relations. Periodic joint conferences between contractors and the IBEW members are held throughout the United States. Also, a National Joint Apprenticeship and Training Committee meets annually to evaluate apprenticeship programs throughout the country. Finally, where else would one find a union conducting seminars to improve efficiency in the industry? Imaginative imaginative Harry Van Arsdale, business manager of Local 3 IBEW in Greater New York, is running such seminars for his men. They are the fulfillment of a promise made to contractors in return for the 1960-61 wage fringe package. But such cooperation is not novel to Local 3 IBEW. For 17 years, there have been in New York City a joint industry board of the electrical industry. This board was formed in 1943 under the terms of a contract between the union and industry to find ways and means to expand the harmony between management and labor. It is made up of 12 members from the union and 12 from management. In addition, there is one public member. Besides administering the extensive welfare plans of Local 3, this board operates a hiring hall, an apprenticeship training program, and a safety program. Finally, it includes a committee working full-time on the development of modern tools and techniques for the industry. In a descriptive brochure entitled, The Team, one finds this opening statement. This is the story of the accomplishments of Local 3 
IBEW, AFL, and the electrical contractors who together comprise the great electrical contracting industry in New York City. Few would deny that there is an industry council in the that, that here is an industry council in the finest sense of the word. The coal industry. Then there is John L. Lewis, the man who probably more than any other has earned the title the Lion of Organized Labor. The Lewis career, which ended with his retirement early in 1960, is significant. This man has run the entire course from grim and bitter industrial warfare to a harmonious cooperation between labor and management, which can, without exaggeration, be termed exemplary. Ten years ago, any professor of labor relations would have cited Lewis as the classic example of belligerence and intransigence in a labor leader. Incidentally, ten years ago also, the coal industry was classified as a sick industry. Today, both these facts have changed, at least so far as bituminous is concerned. And the fact that both have changed in, is no mere coincidence. When two determined people stop pulling in opposite directions and start pulling together, there is bound to be a change. Today, this sick industry can deliver American coal on German doorstep to, on German doorsteps at a price lower than the price for which German mines can offer it. This is because Lewis's sledgehammer tactics have forced the inefficient mine operators to modernize and mechanize or get out of business. A whole maze of unsafe, unhealthful mines had been able to maintain themselves because of substandard wages and primitive working conditions. To this, Lewis put an end. We decided, he said, it is better to have half a million men working in the industry at good wages and high standards of living than it is to have a million men working in the industry in poverty and degradation. The miners who work at their craft today enjoy among the highest wage rates, the shortest hours, and the best fringe benefits of any workers here or abroad. With the mine operators who survived, Lewis cooperated to make American bituminous a most feared competitor in world markets. In June of 1956, John L. Lewis sparked the formation of the American Coal Shipping Company. This unique enterprise was composed of the United Mine Workers, several coal-producing companies, and three coal-carrying railroads. Together, these partners leased and later bought World War II Liberty ships to carry coal to Europe under the American flag at an American seaman's wages. There is scant sign of class conflict here. Moving a step closer to a formal industry council, Lewis suggested in his speech of May 1958 that the coal industry should be representing, represented by an organization which could speak for the entire industry, including his mine workers. Accordingly, in 1959, the National Coal Policy Conference was formed. It is made up of the United Mine Workers, Coal Operators, Coal-Carrying Railroads, and Coal-Using Public Utilities. The aim is to promote the good of the coal industry. About this, the UMW Journal commented editorially. We would not go so far as to say that this conference is a perfect example of a vocational group as, as envisioned in Quadragesimo Anno, yet we certainly must regard it as being in harmony with the spirit of group cooperation as advocated by all modern popes. United Mine Workers Journal, November 15, 1959, page 9. To this we would reply that an industry council by any other name is an industry council still. The crowning testimonial for Lewis's industrial statesmanship was a scorching article in a communist weekly, The National Guardian, January 26, 1959, condemning his cooperative tendencies. Embryo Councils 
Aside from John L. Lewis' metamorphosis and the councils in steel construction and the electrical industries, there are countless examples of sincere cooperation and manifestations of goodwill between labor and management in other industries. Many of these industries are, we dare to say, just a nudge away from setting up formal industry councils. For example, recently the Chicago Waiters Alliance Local 25 agreed to postpone wage demands served on Chicago restaurant owners. The alliance described its position in these words. This settlement takes into consideration the competitive situation of the employers who compose the bargaining unit. It is a settlement that should permit and encourage the employers to absorb additional payroll costs without raising menu prices. In January 1960, 900 members of the United Furniture Workers Union in Gardner, Massachusetts, voted to take a 10% pay cut to help their employer, the 133-year-old Haywood Wakefield Company meet the competition of non-union plants in the South. In an even more dramatic action, Carpenter's local number 3115 in Herkimer, New York, came to the rescue of their employer. Involved was the 75-year-old Standard Furniture Company, manufacturer of office furniture. The firm notified the mayor of Herkimer that it would have to close its doors unless it could raise $150,000 immediately. The company's plight was made known to the 300 members of the local 3115 at a special meeting, and before the meeting was over, the men had pledged $75,000. The union also provided canvassers, canvassers for the general appeal, and standard furniture was saved for Herkimer. At its 1957 convention, the International Leather Goods, Plastics, and Novelty Workers Union called for a program of labor management cooperation to secure remedial legislation in the area of excise taxes and tariffs. Representatives of labor and management have been meeting regularly since that time on this common ground. In 1958, the Textile Workers Union, AFL-CIO, distributed 25,000 copies of a pamphlet outlining proposals to cure the ills of the textile industry. It was distributed to legislators, governors, and other influential persons, with the union paying all expenses. The same union had sponsored an essay contest to gather suggestions for solving the industry's problems. To show that it would back words with action, the union decided to drop its demands for a wage increase because, in the words of its international president, the industry is and has been in its most serious depression in 20 years. In Detroit, the members of Packing House Workers Local 190 voluntarily agreed to give financial assistance to their employer to enable him to remain in business. They agreed to loan the employer 10% of their earnings for five years. This would give the 99-year-old Hamilton Standish Company some $900,000 in capital with which to modernize its facilities. We may conclude that industry councils do in fact exist today in the United States. This should blunt the barbs of those cynics who have for years pronounced the industry council idea stillborn. Furthermore, it is noteworthy that councils are emerging typically in situations where there are strong, bona fide labor unions. This proves that sycophant unions or non-union conditions are not prerequisite for the virile labor management cooperation which produces industry councils. Labor unions serve legitimate, though narrower, interests than industry councils and it is not likely that they will disappear as councils arrive, any more than cities disappeared when nations arrived in the political order. Parties on both sides of the bargaining table are beginning to realize that they both eat off that table, and that, is, that it is possible, in fact advisable, to be a loyal member of the industry, as well as of the employer or labor organization. 
that is, after all, as true in the economic order as it is in the political order. Being a loyal citizen of Chicago does not imply disloyalty to the United States. In addition to the councils that have already been established, countless instances of labor management cooperation and thousands of successful profit-sharing arrangements indicate the presence of abundant raw material for more industry councils. Once the goodwill and common sense which foster a sense of industrial citizenship are present, a modicum of imagination is all that is still needed for setting up industry councils. Unfortunately, one finds other situations where an industry is desperately in need of a cooperative solution to its problems, but where myopic bickering forestalls constructive action. The railroad industry is an example. This writer is convinced after four years in the industry that nothing but a silent labor management attack on its many serious problems will save the railroads from eventual nationalization. This may be another instance where an industry must be at death's door before its members find inspiration to advance beyond the caveman stage of industrial relations. In any case, American labor and management men have begun spontaneously to set up industry councils. This is because councils are natural to a well-ordered society, because the majority of these men are reasonable men. This is genuine and significant social progress. So pretty high praise for uh, Pope Pius XI uh, encyclical uh, from places that you might not have expected there. And I think this is a great little article by editor, and I'm sure uh, if we had... Uh, if we could write like this in, in uh, the economics profession now, uh, I think things would be a whole lot better. But um, I think what you see here is there's this uh, genuine solidarity and um, this sort of um, fighting for a common purpose uh, that I, I'm not sure if this still exists in industries today. I mean, I'd love for uh, folks to reach out and let me know if this is the case. Uh, but, um, it seems like now <laughs> my limited experience with this kind of thing, um, it seems like HR departments are the ones that sort of run everything. So there isn't really a, uh, there isn't really a relationship between management and, um, and, and, and the, the unionized labor themselves. It's just sort of, uh, the whole thing is just sort of managed by, um, the nannies and HR. So I, I don't know. I mean, I guess, and by nannies, I mean just people who are just shuffling paper around. It's not, um, it's just, you know, here's the book. Uh, if you don't like it, go somewhere else, right? There's not a, it, it, in my experience, again, very limited. It didn't seem like there was a, there was any interaction. Uh, it was just the HR department just sort of facilitated uh, any communication that existed. So anyway, thanks for listening. And I appreciate all of you sharing the show. If you, uh, if you enjoy it, uh, you can check me out on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, you can send me an email if you'd like. Uh, if you'd like to support the show financially, you can check out Patreon, subscribe star links in the show, excuse me, of the, of the episode. And, um, if you have, uh, any thoughts or anything, I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for your time.